0: This week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show, Idaho is set to break a record for total farm revenue. And we also take a look at how the government monitors drought across the nation. And we take you to Driggs, to the Penfold Farm, where they're celebrating a very big anniversary. Of course, Paul Marchant will have irons in the fire later in the program. Welcome, I'm Neil Larson. Our news is just ahead.
1: You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us you're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at
0: 4H.org. Well, barring an unforeseen catastrophe, Idaho will almost certainly set a record for total farm gate receipts this year, according to a piece by Sean Ellis with the Idaho Farm Bureau Federation. Whether farmers actually increase their bottom line this year, however, is uncertain given that farm input costs are soaring. University of Idaho agricultural economist Garth Taylor told Ellis, we're going to break an all-time record for cash receipts this year. Farm gate receipts are the revenue that farmers and ranchers receive for their commodities. And Taylor is one of the authors of U of I's annual financial condition of Idaho agriculture report, which estimates total farm gate receipts and total net farm income in Idaho. One of the report's co-authors, economist Ben Eborn, agrees that it appears inevitable that that the state's record for farm gate receipts will be broken this year. He told the Farm Bureau that we're going to set a record this year for cash receipts for sure. And the reason is simple. The price for virtually every agricultural commodity is up this year. Idaho farmers also expect good yields as well. Now, if you'd like to read more from this story, and there is a lot more to read, you can just go to IdahoFB.org and search their news section. Well, USDA's latest adjustments in milk production and price forecasts reflect a rise in milk production and lower prices. Here's Rod Bain along with World Ag Outlook Board Chair Mark Jechanowski.
2: Production forecasts for milk are up for 2022 and 23 per USDA's latest projections. This is World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski.
3: That's reflecting higher cow numbers. We expect milk production to be higher than we were forecasting in July and will continue to increase year over year. Now we're forecasting about a 2.5 billion increase in milk production in 2023 versus 2022.
2: The higher production, meanwhile, is putting pressure on prices, both in product and class. Lowered across the board, for both years. Yet that means for both fat and skim solid basis milk
3: products, higher dairy exports, maybe a little bit softer dairy imports, but the export forecast is tempered a little bit by some concerns about economic growth going into 2023 and the potential effects of the stronger dollar. I'm
2: Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: An American Farm Bureau survey shows that drought is hitting U.S. agriculture hard. Here's Chad Smith with more on the impacts that are being felt on the ground.
1: The American Farm Bureau Federation distributed a third drought impact survey in June to its members in 15 states across the western U.S., Danny Munch, an economist with Farm Bureau, said the survey was distributed to state staff, county and state leadership, and farmer and rancher members.
4: The survey included several demographic questions to distinguish state affiliation and had sections on crop specific factors, livestock factors, and general water access. By the end, we received over 650 responses from those 15 states and it got a whole bunch of data on operational level changes that farmers and ranchers were doing to cope with drought.
1: The major takeaways from the survey They show farmers are continuing to battle severe drought conditions.
4: Respondents expect their farm-related revenue to be down 38% from average because of drought. 74% reported an expected reduction in harvest yields. 66% reported liquidating parts of their herd or livestock herd. And 73% reported reduced surface water deliveries because of drought conditions. Many more farmers were chilling under crops and removing orchards compared to last year. And of those who reduced their herd size last year, half were continuing to liquidate.
1: He says communicating the impact of drought on agriculture is crucial to the conversation surrounding effective drought mitigation efforts.
4: A lot of data on drought impacts is often isolated. It's not uniform across the country, or it's just generally difficult to come by. So we at AFBF recognized the gap in data and decided to run our own survey. This is the third time as drought continues to persist. And that data provides useful insights on the operational level hurdle farmers and ranchers face in coping with that drought that's helpful in our communication efforts.
1: Chad Smith, Washington.
0: USDA adjusted beef production forecasts are up for this current calendar year and the next year in their latest outlook. Here's Rod Bain.
2: While U.S. beef production year over year is forecasted down, USDA's latest look at production in August notes adjustments up for this year and next. World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski with the explanation.
3: We raised our production forecast this month by about 68 million pounds, so that's for 2022, and that mainly reflects observed slaughter pace and pretty large marketings recently, which we expect placements to continue at a high rate into the second half of the year, and with that higher placements of cattle into feedlots in the second half of this year, that should translate into higher beef production into 2023, so we also raised our beef Production forecast for next year by about 320 million pounds.
2: Steer prices rose both in 2022 and 23, up 75 cents this year. At a quarter next year from the previous forecast, an indication of current cattle price strength. And what about hog production? A slight reduction in domestic pork production forecast for this year.
3: We slightly reduced our pork production forecast, mainly reflecting the third quarter slaughter pace, a little bit of slowdown there, and relatively tight hog supplies. But we didn't make any changes to 2023.
2: World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski says similar trends and adjustments are noted for hog prices in the August forecast.
3: Hog price forecast currently forecast at $73.78 per hundredweight. We raised that $3.00 per hundredweight this month, reflecting just tight supplies of hogs and strong packer demand. But we didn't make any change to our price forecast for the new year, for 2023. That's currently at $69.75 per hundredweight.
2: Pork exports were adjusted slightly down month over month for this calendar year but remain unchanged for 2023. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in
0: Washington, D.C. Well, price increases at the supermarket finally peaked, Gary Crawford has the answer in this report.
5: For the U.S. economy as a whole, the rate of inflation last month, as measured by the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, went down to zero, helped along a lot by... The average price for gasoline dropping by over 7.5%. But while the rate of price hikes for some items in the economy did slow down.
6: Food did not.
5: No, it did not. Agriculture Department economist Matt McLaughlin says that according to the Consumer Price Index covering July.
6: For food at home, we saw a 1.4% increase. Leading to a 13.1% year over year increase between July of 21 and July of 22.
5: And that's the highest 12-month increase in grocery store food prices since 1979. And it's not just coming from the meat sector. Take a look at prices for cereals and bakery products. Matt says those prices are rising faster than almost any other food category, up 2% just in the month of July. According to the CPI, breakfast cereals are costing us over 16.5% more than they did this time a year ago. Bread is up 13.5%. And if you do your own bake Look at the cost of flour, just flour. That went up about 4% in July. And Matt says...
6: Compared to July of last year, we saw an increase of 23% for flour and prepared flour mixes.
5: And he says that has to do directly with what's been going on with wheat prices around the world.
6: We're seeing price increases that are coming off of the Russia-Ukraine conflict.
5: Now, for beef lovers, perhaps some good news there. Retail beef prices actually dropped in July, but only by one-tenth of one percent, leading beef prices still about three and a half percent higher than this time a year ago. And for other meat products...
6: Pork is uh, up 7.6 from a year ago. Poultry is up 16.6 percent. and Fish and seafood is up 8.7 percent from a year ago.
5: So, yes, inflation in the overall economy in July was flat, with some products like gasoline dropping in price. Now, some analysts think that might be a clue that the very high inflation forces may be cooling down. Maybe we've reached the peak of inflation.
6: However, for food, we're still increasing at the same percentage rate each month.
5: At least 1% a month, and in July, almost 1.5%. Matt McLaughlin says to be able to say that food prices have peaked, he'd have to see monthly price hikes of 1% or less for at least a couple of months in a row.
6: And as of the July data, we have not seen that yet. So uh, we're clearly not at the peak.
5: So we shoppers may have to wait a bit longer for relief from rapidly rising food prices.
6: Food production and retailing has a lot of inputs, so uh, this may lag behind the rest of the economy.
5: This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: Well, after a two-year absence, international wheat trade teams are returning to Idaho, according to the Idaho Farm Bureau. The Idaho Wheat Commission typically hosts several international trade teams each year that want to get a close-up look at the state's wheat industry, but government-ordered restrictions related to COVID-19 kept them away for two years. Having face-to-face relationships with customers is essential for Idaho's wheat industry, according to outgoing IWC Executive Director Casey Chum- Chumrau um and she said that we've not been able to do that for the last couple of years and we're happy to be able to invite customers and friends back to Idaho to show them the entire wheat production process end of quote a technical trade team from South America visited Idaho In early August, to gain more information about the state's wheat industry, and that trade team consisted of millers, agronomists, and other wheat industry experts from Ecuador and Peru, which purchased a combined 573,500 metric tons of U.S. wheat last year. After stops in Minnesota and Oklahoma, they visited a farm in Ryrie and wheat facilities in Blackfoot and Pocatello, and they liked what they saw. Now, you can read more of Sean Ellis's piece, From the Idaho Farm Bureau at IdahoFB.org. 50% of the country is looking at very short to short topsoil moisture condition ratings for the week ending August 14th. Here's Rod Bain with meteorologist Brad Rippey.
2: A drier than normal week this past week is reflected in USDA's latest topsoil moisture condition ratings.
7: By August 14th, we were looking at one half of the country experiencing short to very short topsoil moisture. That is a three percentage point increase from the previous week and just a minimal amount of the country, three percent reporting topsoil moisture surpluses.
2: USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says it's not just western and central U.S. states reporting topsoil moisture condition between 50 to 100 percent, very short to short, as similar status is reported in sub northeastern states as well.
7: Looking at the handful of states that have double-digit topsoil moisture surpluses, very short list includes Illinois and Kentucky, two areas that have seen some downpours in recent weeks, along with Louisiana, and then add to that Maine in northern New England, where we've seen some heavy rain as well in recent days. I'm
2: Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well,
7: University of Idaho
0: researchers are pioneering technologies that have potential to turn a liability for dairymen, animal waste, into revenue-generating products. John O'Connell with the University of Idaho has this piece. What would setting up commercial operations to transform dairy manure and lagoon water into usable products entail logistically? And would consumers accept products made from cow excrement? Would it be cost-effective to produce them, and how should supply chains be established? A team of U of I ag economists is seeking to answer those key questions by building on technological discoveries made by other U of I researchers as part of a five-year, $10 million USDA Sustainable Agricultural Systems Grant More than 20 U of I faculty members and several graduate students are participating in different aspects of the research. Work under the grant started in September 2019, initially focused on manure application and its effects on soils and nutrient uptake by crops, and future research will expand into the economics of converting manure into renewable bioplastic, as well as separating it into valuable concentrated crop nutrient components that can be substituted for commercial fertilizer. There's more to this story from Shauna Ellis, and you can check that out at IdahoFB.org. Well, even at the late summer peak of very poor to poor pasture and rangeland conditions nationwide, it appears this year's conditions at this time are worse than usual. Once again, here's Rod Bain.
2: No surprise that late summer features some of the nation's lowest pasture and rangeland conditions on an annual basis. Yet, as USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey points out,
7: things are a little worse than normal this year.
2: And for the period ending August 14th,
7: we see our very poor-to-poor ratings for rangeland and pastures this week at 52%. That is another increase from last week, and that has been the trend in recent weeks as we've seen drier than normal conditions. In terms of good to excellent ratings, the national number is just 21 percent, and that is also a decrease from last week as we continue to see those declining overall rangeland and pasture conditions.
2: Much of the north and east are holding well with good to excellent pasture and rangeland conditions.
7: However, parts of the northeast, as well as the western and central United States, continue to really struggle keeping that national number above 50 percent this week.
2: I'm Rod Bade, reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: In our next segment, the USDA tells us what goes into developing the U.S. Drought Monitor. And we'll head on over to Driggs, where the Penfold family is celebrating their farm now over 100 years old. It's all ahead on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. What goes into the developing of the U.S. Drought Monitor? It's a question more are asking as greater interest has developed in this weekly report, a byproduct of increased drought over the past two years. Rod Bain talks with one of the authors of the Drought Monitor about the input and considerations involved, including public feedback, in this edition of Agriculture USA.
2: With a significant share of the nation experiencing extreme drought conditions, some parts dealing with it as far back as two years ago, several have been paying closer attention to what the weekly U.S. Drought Monitor reports. And as one of its authors, Brian Fuchs of the National Drought Mitigation Center notes, with prolonged drought comes many questions how the drought monitor obtains its data and makes its findings. Also,
8: I think there is a perception out there that if I don't agree with the map, I need to call someone up and let
2: them know. I'm Rod Bain. Coming up, a look at how the weekly National Drought Monitor report is crafted, including how your input is included in this edition of Agriculture USA.
1: You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at
2: 4H.org. Extreme drought of the past two years in the West and expanded drought to other areas of the country has placed a greater interest in the weekly U.S. Drought Monitor. Yet, Brian Fuchs of the National Drought Mitigation Center, one of the many authors of the Drought Monitor, realizes perceptions of conditions on the ground level may not match up to the Drought Monitor's numbers and data.
8: Sometimes, especially on the agricultural side, depending on management practices or some of the conditions that were in place prior to that heat and dryness setting and how the soils are and things like that, or the progress that the crop is currently in, what stage of development is it in, they may start seeing some of these impacts more readily on the ground, even when some of the data are not really showing it yet.
2: So how is the drought monitor created? Fuchs explains there are 10 authors from various federal agencies, such as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the Agriculture Department. Various data sets are utilized in crafting the weekly reports.
8: Yet he adds, We come together and we manually move those lines each week. Yes, we bring the data all into a GIS platform, but we actually are looking at the underlying data right there on the map and we're adjusting those lines based on those data sets. And any given week, we look at a good 100 or more pieces of data through several dozen types of inputs that we're utilizing.
2: In addition, the drought monitor is produced with assistance and feedback from hundreds of experts representing entities like academia, state climatology offices, the National Weather Service, and local USDA offices.
8: They also validate and critique the drafts of the drought monitor. So when the public sees the final map come out on Thursday morning, it's actually went through at least three, sometimes up to five or six iterations during the week where we have several hundred sets of eyes around the country looking at it. They're providing feedback and information on impacts what's going on in their region. Yeah
2: yet, it is the slow development of drought in most instances, as well as the reverse phenomena of flash drought that has been observed in some places this summer that has producers and the public wondering why their area perhaps is listed in a certain drought category. Fuchs understands, as several USDA disaster assistance programs are tied to thresholds within drought monitor categories.
8: That's what was the selling points to USDA when they started implementing these programs utilizing the drought monitor. It was a scientific and objective tool that had been out there for a long time. It had been under scrutiny, and many people were familiar with it, and they did decide that it was the best way to implement these programs.
2: What you may not realize, though, is that you, too, can play a part in reporting for the U.S. Drought Monitor.
8: For the public, we have tools that individuals anywhere in the country can provide feedback of what's going on in their neck of the woods.
2: It's a process called seaborne reporting.
8: It's condition monitoring observer reports, and there's a simple form that anyone can fill out. It's public, and there's a link to it. They are able to tell this is what the response to drought has been. Some of them also provide photographs. Hey, this is what my stock pond looks like. It's typically full this time of year, and now you can see it's receded several feet.
2: Now, Fuchs admits that while submission of first-hand viewing and photos through Seymour reporting won't necessarily change a category on the drought monitor map.
8: It may help the U.S. drought monitor author see, hey, there's an area that we're seeing a lot of impacts from and some of it's quite severe. We need to dig into the data a little bit more, talk to our local contributors. So it kind of sheds some light on some of these areas that could possibly be getting overlooked by the process that we go through each week.
2: The weekly U.S. drought monitor is found online at HTTPS ttps colon double backslash monitor all one word, dot unl dot edu. The web address to locate the Seymour reporting page is www.go.unl.edu slash cmor underscore drought. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: The Penfold family in Driggs is celebrating the 100th anniversary of their farm, surrounded by their community and family. The Idaho Farm Bureau was there, and they filed this report.
9: This all started 100 years ago with my grandfather. I'm Paris Penfold, and this is my wife, Janet Field Penfold.
10: So we are in Driggs, Idaho, and we are on our—we are in the cellar of our potato
9: field. This all started 100 years ago with my grandfather. His name is Verge Penfold, and my grandmother was a Hellman that just lived down the street over here. We got lots of Hellmans surrounding us. In fact, uh, we got an activity with one of the Hellmans tomorrow night he sings, and we're having a big dance. So it all started a hundred years ago with with Georgia Hillman and Virge Pencil.
10: Grandpa first came when he was seven years old, and he came from Utah. And he had some other uncles that had moved here, and he and his family have settled here. He came on the railroad and and caught the, the, at the rail end was in St. Anthony. And he got off the train there, and uh, he remembers having lunch with Ed Trafton, who if you're a resident of the valley, he was a notorious stagecoach robber, (laughs) and was put in prison not long after that. But when, but Grandpa Verge remembers when meeting he was seven him. years old meeting him and having dinner with him at a ca- at a cafe there. And they came over by a wagon and um,
9: after when he started well, working
10: that winter his father died of pneumonia. And there were eleven kids in this family. And he was the tenth of eleven children. And his older brothers and his mother raised him, they lived in log cabins and chicken coops and really wherever they could get a job and then he had a livery stable with one of his brothers and traded it for a piece of land that he sold and then later uh, when he was about 18 I think he bought the very first 60 acres which is we're standing on some of the original land that he bought and his first cabin was just a little ways over here that you could still almost see the the foundation for where they started and he had they had six children five girls and
9: my dad was the only son
10: yeah Paris grew up in Driggs Idaho so he is a third generation seed potato grower here in Driggs and he had to import some new blood into the valley, so he went over to Owyhee County and found a little field girl that knew only how to raise sugar beets, and brought me over to teach me how to raise potatoes. Seed potatoes. So I am a farm girl, married a farmer.
9: Well, I really, I really believe that that there's a lot of things that you inherit from your grandparents or your parents and one of those things is hard work because that's uh, that's what you learn on a farm and i think that because of the families here a lot of these families come back and spend some time working with my grandpa and stuff and so i really think that uh, you know we inherit things and i think that if you work hard uh, right from the beginning you're gonna be successful.
8: So you're gonna have a party. Tell us, tell us what what's, what's the celebration this weekend.
9: Oh my gosh, it is incredible. Uh, my wife, uh, last year, decided that she would go ahead and fill out all the papers and stuff to become a, a Centennial Good. Farm. And uh, so she's done most all the work for any, all of this stuff. Yeah. Well, it was really
10: my brother, Howard, who told me about the Century Farm program, and I knew that it was his family's 100th anniversary coming up pretty soon, because his grandfather purchased the land in 1920 in the fall, and started farming in 1921.
9: And we decided that because of COVID we'd wait a year to see if we can get everybody together so we're having a, a big uh, reunion and a celebration and uh, so we've just got all kinds of fun things planned that you do on the farm we've got a pipe moving contest going we've got sack races for the kids we're going to have a potato contest where they have to pick potatoes and the potatoes out in the field are not quite big enough to do that so we we've got some other potatoes that we no. <laughs> that we're gonna have to take that done. But yeah, they're just they have to take the small. good with the bad. That's right. So anyway, we're just gonna have a fun uh, three-day three-day celebration. We've got uh, tons of relatives that are coming, and we're just excited to uh, to share that with our families plus with Farm Bureau. Well, happy
0: 100th to the Penfolds. In our next segment, some promising news with Ukraine's crop production and export numbers, and a look at the Farm Bill on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. It's the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. Of course, you can catch this and previous episodes of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show at IdahoFarmNet.com. There appears to be good news related to corn and wheat exports and corn production coming out of Ukraine, according to the USDA's latest global supply and demand estimates. Here's Rod Bain.
2: The August USDA Global Supply and Demand Estimate was the first since this news out of Ukraine just days earlier. The ongoing agreement with Russia, Ukraine, with Turkey as the moderator of this agreement to ship grain out of some of Ukraine's Black Sea ports. According to Agriculture Department Chief Economist Seth Meyer, shipments from Ukraine in recent days have been headed to destinations such as Turkey, Syria, South Korea, at Africa there was reflection of this news within the latest World Agricultural Supply and Demand estimates for subcrops, such as in the export category, where forecasts indicate on the order of about four and a half million metric tons of additional grain exports. For instance, as World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski notes, a one million ton increase of wheat exports out of Ukraine.
3: Shipments from Ukraine have recently accelerated, so we expect wheat exports to capture business from Ukraine. And
2: chief economist Meyer also points to...
3: an estimate that they'll increase their
2: corn exports by 3 million metric tons this year. That rise in corn exports comes from a month-over-month increase in Ukrainian corn production. World Board Chair Jekodowsky explains,
3: Things are looking quite favorable in Ukraine, notwithstanding the challenges from the conflict, from the war, just in terms of the weather and the satellite imagery that we can look at to get a sense of the health of the vegetation there, suggests that the corn crop is coming along quite nicely.
2: In addition, most of Ukraine's corn is grown in areas that have so far avoided conflict and war impacts. So, regarding the production forecast...
3: We raised our production forecast for Ukraine by 5 million metric tons to 30 million.
2: Yet, even with the promising news from Ukraine regarding some crops and crop exports, there are some areas of concern, such as corn and wheat production down over 12 and 13% year-over-year, respectively. And the chief economist adds, even with the ramp-up of exports from Ukraine... An assessment by the World Board of a limited expansion in overall grain exports, the Ukrainians will still face a storage problem when it
0: comes to harvesting of spring crops.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: While the Farm Bill is commonly thought of as a piece of agricultural legislation, the nutrition title of the bill is just as important and just as beneficial to farmers and ranchers. Michael Clement shares more on why the nutrition title is vital to the legislation. Over the years, there's been some talk
6: of splitting farm programs and nutrition programs in the Farm Bill to separate bills. However, Utah Farm Bureau member Tyson Roberts says the two programs need to be connected. Roberts is a produce grower that sells direct to consumers.
11: I am the sixth generation on our family farm. Over the years, we've done a lot of different things, cattle and a lot of grain crops. Got more into vegetables as I was growing up. We switched more to vegetables and specifically direct marketed vegetables. So now about 85% of our crops go directly to consumers at, at farmers
6: markets. Customers at the farmers' markets can use their SNAP benefits, funded by the Farm Bill, to purchase fresh, local food.
11: It's been beneficial to have that option available to those in our community that are most in need, giving them the opportunity to buy the freshest, high-quality produce and use their SNAP benefits to receive that. And it helps us boost our sales as well, opening up to more customers. Robert
6: says farm programs and the nutrition program go hand in hand.
11: It's tough to get a farm bill passed that has all of the things the farmers need without the nutrition aspect of it because you have lawmakers on both sides of the aisle representing a lot of different demographics and those urban legislators need to see something in the farm bill that's benefiting their constituents. Michael Clements, Washington.
0: In our final segment, avocados to the rescue. We're consuming many more now than we did a few years back. Plus, Paul Marchin will close things out with Irons in the Fire on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Welcome back to our final segment today. Each of us is consuming an average of three times more avocados now than we did in 1999, and Gary Crawford has more about this fruit.
5: And now, almost live over most of the station, we're coming to you from the hallowed halls of Ed. Well, no, actually, it's a tent, really, the home of vegetation, Education, good old Veg U, in the middle of the Agriculture Department's Farmers Market, right here off the mall in beautiful but very hot Washington D.C. With me is Veg U Associate Professor Tommy. Algeboy. She's here to talk about what, me? Avocados. Uh, you, you don't sound very enthusiastic there, uh, but you've been out in this 95 degree heat for hours preparing for your lecture and demonstration on avocados. So while she drinks some cool water, let's uh, bring in our veggie music students. They've been working for weeks composing songs inspired by avocados. Uh, go ahead there. Yeah, well, that song awesome. has philosophy galore, but let's uh, let's go to a refreshed, uh, Tomi. Uh, we understand avocados have a great reputation, nutritionally, that, I mean, and, and there's a lot of good things in one avocado, uh, but what are they, for example?
12: Well, avocados are a great source of unsaturated fatty acids. We need fats in our diets to help protect our organs and keep lots of processes in our bodies going, so it's important to choose healthy sources of fat to do so and so that's what avocados are.
5: Ah, so they have some good fatty uh, acids in there. What else can be found in in one uh, avocado?
12: They also provide one third of the potassium that we need for our everyday. Um, electrolyte which is important to replenish us especially in this heat Ah, half of the daily fiber we need which is important for for gut health one-fourth of our daily vitamin B6 needs which is important for brain health
5: yeah which I certainly uh, could use
12: I think you could
5: I could indeed yes I also could use some advice on buying avocados what do I look for uh, at the store
12: so if you're looking for a ripe avocado, you want to choose one with a dark green or almost black skin. Um, it will give in slightly when you squeeze it.
5: And on the um, the what you definitely don't want to bring home?
12: That's the fruit that has dark shriveled skin, dents or spots of mushy flesh. You want to avoid that.
5: That <laughs> must be the reason people avoid me. <laughs>
12: Very funny, yeah. Gary. <laughs> no,
5: no, it really could be. And, and oh, when I get those avocados home, how should I uh, store them?
12: For whole avocados, um, you want to store them on the countertop. If you want it to ripen quickly, you want to place them in a brown bag with an apple or a banana. Um, but if you're looking to slow down your ripening process and kind of keep it a bit longer, you can place them in the fridge.
5: Okay, now, Tommy and her our helpers here are making guacamole. They will put it on bagels and give it out to folks here at the market. But there are scores of ways to use avocados. Just go online. You search avocado recipes and you will see hundreds of them. This is Gary I love avocados. They are very yummy. No, 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 no. They are more yummy without the music, I think. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
0: And finally today, Paul Marchant brings us this installment of Irons in the Fire.
13: Since uh, it's kind of fair time and fair time is winding down and what comes right after fair time, school time, I'm kind of reminded of a little story I'm quite familiar with from my youth. You know, it's been a pretty good stretch of time since I've had much to do with anything on the grade school level. It was a joyous day in the Marchant household when the last of our kids finished his last day at Oakley Elementary School. Truthfully, it was probably a joyous day in the classroom of several members of the OES faculty staff as well. My joy and the joy of those long-suffering educators, however, sprang from different sources, no doubt. Though the teachers no doubt appreciated my youngest son and his talents, just as they appreciated every student, I'm sure they were pretty happy to see his demon side move up the road to the junior-senior high school. I, on the other hand, was most happy to see the annual grade school carnival, with all of its parental obligations solidly in my rearview mirror, never to be looked at again. I treasure a wholesome community event as much as the next beleaguered parent, but for some reason the racket and the headaches and the duties and the responsibilities... That accompanied the shrill and obnoxious shrieks of every 6- to 12-year-old kid in the valley frazzled my nerves, and I haven't missed it one bit in the last dozen or so years. Now all of this blissful reminiscing takes me back a few decades to my own school days. I don't know how they do it now, but back in the day, if your birthday fell on a school day, it was kind of expected that you'd bring treats to school, enough for everyone in the class. Some kids would bring cupcakes, and others would bring a box or two of candy bars. You know, but it really didn't matter. The treats and the extra ten minutes away from actual schoolwork was always a welcome respite. Joey was, for the most part, a pretty good kid. As a matter of fact, he turned into a darn good and productive citizen in his adult life. And in my estimation, he probably does as much as anyone I know to further the goodwill message of agriculture in the West. But when he was a kid, he was that kid. If there was some mischief to be had, Joey was probably in the middle of it, or at the very least, he was behind it. On Joey's ninth birthday, I believe it was his ninth birthday, he could hardly contain himself until the end of the school day when he could pass out treats to his classmates. I still don't know how he dared do it, considering every teacher ever's utter disdain for the stuff, But his treat of choice to be passed out to every kid in the class was a pack of Bubblicious Bubblegum. I don't even know if they still make the stuff, but remember that stuff? Big, pink, and nasty sweet. It was the best and worst all at once, wrapped up in one big sugary glob. Some of the super cool kids could shove two pieces in their mouths at once, attacking the formidable pink beast at first with slow, laborious chewing motions that tested the very limits of their jaw muscles. Eventually, the huge, malleable mass would surrender to the tenacity of the adolescent's super willpower, manifested through lion-strong jaws and sugar-coated teeth, at which time it became a bubble-making wonder. I think Joey was well aware of the wonders of a Hence, he chose the gift to gift a whole pack to every kid in his class. Against her better judgment, Mrs. Smith, now that's probably not her real name, but we're going to protect her identity, she allowed her charges to open their prizes a couple minutes prior to the dismissal bell. Joey wasn't content with just blowing behemoth bubbles. No, he discovered that if he wrapped a sticky mass around his finger, it would stretch for miles. That led to the discovery of the bubblegum riata, which he could swing around his head with skill reminiscent of the handiest vaquero, armed with his own rawhide cowcatcher. It only took a couple swings for him to also discover that a bubblicious riata will pick up the hair on a nine-year-old hellion's head quicker than a junior Nagara heel who can scoop up a pair of heels in the Las Vegas arena sand. With a wad of gum firmly entrenched in his messy locks, Joey eventually had little choice but to finally beg his teacher for help. While he readily offered the information to her that someone was throwing gum, he was unable to identify the gum chucker. Since it was the end of school day, Mrs. Smith dismissed the class, but not before informing them that they were going to give up the identity of the gum thrower before any more recess time was to be had the next day. After a crude haircut from his mom that night, Joey didn't get much sleep that evening his mind full of worry and trepidation as to how he was going to deal with unfolding drama that would surely blossom like a wicked scotch thistle plant the next day at school. Sure enough, and true to her word, Mrs. Smith forbade all of her students to leave the classroom for the first recess of the day until they identified poor Joey's assailant. Of course, nobody said a word because nobody knew who the culprit was. Finally, the stalwart and wise teacher relented and allowed Joey and Tiffany to go to recess. Joey, because of his victim status, and Tiffany, because she'd been absent on the day of the crime. Joey, with his stomach in knots, traipsed out to the monkey bars. He was able to hold out through recess and into the next class period. But finally, his better angels got the better of him, and he confessed his misdeeds to his teacher. I don't really recall her final sentence, but I've no doubt it was more relief and punishment to Joey's tortured soul. Joey still continued to raise a little cane throughout the remainder of his school years, but I'm certain that his bubblegum rodeo, with its ensuing prize money, was a pivot point in his life. Having said that, though, I know he still likes a good child bubblegum every now and again. This is Paul Marchant wishing you a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us
0: today. I'm Neil Larson, and don't forget to check in with us online or grab the podcast of our program at IdahoFarmNet.com. We'll catch you next week at this time on the Idaho
7: Farm and Ranch Show.